We are in many ways in in a part two this evening as it relates to Jeremiah 31. We spoke last week in Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. We came across this concept in verses 31 through 34 where God promised a new covenant which he would make with the house of Israel. Now, we did not focus upon the nature of this new covenant last week because that will be the focus of our time this evening and particularly talking about the the contrast as the New Testament paints it between the old covenant and the new. And this is what we are going to explore in our time together. We are going to dig into it. And as we do so, let's begin by reorienting ourselves in Jeremiah 31. We'll be spending a good amount of time in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews this evening. But we'll begin in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, to reorient our perspective on what we read last week. The Bible says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So we talked last time about the nature of this promise. In chapter 30, God had said that there was coming in the latter days, the days after the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, a, a, a new covenant that, that well, in, in chapter 30, particularly in the latter days, there would be the time of Jacob's trouble, right? And that they would be saved out of that time of Jacob's trouble. And all of chapter 30 really was about the what of God's judgment and salvation upon the nation. Then as we got into chapter 31, this was more the why and the how, right? The what is you're going to have this horrible, terrible time and I'm going to save you out of it. And then all the details as it relates to that. Then in chapter 31, verse 3, I have loved you, God said, with an everlasting love. And he begins to talk about that and the judgment upon them, but how, how that love will compel him unto this new covenant. The deepest essence of this how was that God was going to bring about a new Covenant, And he made specifically this statement that it would not be according to the old covenant. And one of the things that we understand and we'll see this evening is that, that while the new covenant in many ways superseded the old, they don't accomplish the same purpose because the old covenant never saved. We know that all throughout, that the Old Covenant was never sufficient to save. As a matter of fact, Paul makes clear in Romans, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, right? And then he, quote, and then he speaks of David and David saying the same thing. Blessed is the man whose, uh, whose sins are forgiven, right? And so Paul makes the argument and makes it very plain that it was never the law that saved anyone. It was by grace through faith. And yet, simultaneously, the capacity to do right, the capacity to keep God's law, the capacity to live in righteousness, which is what the law did demand, which is what the old covenant did demand, was unfulfilled and can be realized through this new covenant. And this is really where we need to start thinking about the contrast between these and ask ourselves the question, if God is establishing a new covenant, then what was the old covenant that the new covenant was going to replace? And we look to the text for clues and find that God contrasts the new covenant in verse 32 with the covenant that God made with the people when he took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. This covenant then is the covenant that we would call the Mosaic covenant or the law of Moses. We talked briefly last time about this that they heard the covenant in Exodus 20 by the voice of God. 
and then we see the record of the nation entering into that covenant in Exodus 24, when Moses sprinkled the blood of an ox upon the people, and then they swore to uphold the covenant. This covenant bound the nation to both the blessings of obedience and the cursings of disobedience. But even at this time, God knew, of course, that this covenant was not going to be sufficient, that this covenant was, was not to save anyone, that the blood of bulls and of goats and of calves and of lambs could never actually atone for sin. It could only cover. It could only be a temporary covering, not a sufficient covering, not a sufficient atonement. In fact, as early as Deuteronomy chapter 30, before they had even entered the land of promise, God told the nation that they would fail at keeping the covenant. He told them that. That God would scatter them throughout the world and then that he would regather them in the last days. That their regathering would not be according to the covenant of Sinai, but according to a covenant whereby God would give them a new heart. Jeremiah is not the introduction to this promise. We see it in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessings and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations. Why are they among all the nations? Because they're scattered, right? Among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. And if, and, excuse me, if any of thine be driven out into the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee, and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. So here we see that promise of God circumcising their heart, giving them a new heart, setting them apart. We have this promise that there will be a time after all of the blessings and all of the cursings have been levied against them, that they would be scattered because that was the final cursing is I will scatter you among the nations if you don't obey. They would be scattered among the nations and then God would remember them from among those nations and he would regather them just as we've seen time and again. And once they are regathered, which Jeremiah says is after the time of Jacob's trouble, right? Jeremiah 30 said that. Then God will circumcise the heart of the nation. The phrase is in contrast to the circumcision of the flesh. The circumcision of the flesh was the means by which every male on the eighth day entered into the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. The, the covenant the, entered into uh, the nation, Israel, Abraham. Going all the way back before the Mosaic covenant, Abraham and, and particularly Isaac. Isaac was the first person to receive the circumcision on the eighth day according to God's covenant. And then that covenant gave way or that, that circumcision gave way to not just associating yourself with Abraham, but actually with Israel itself, so that if someone was not circumcised on the eighth day, they would not have any part in Israel. They would not have any part in the covenant. And so we have that contrast there. God saying, I will circumcise your heart. Circumcision was a sign of God's promises with his people. Any man who would not be circumcised would be excluded from the covenant. And God uses this picture of circumcision as it relates to the new covenant, except that the new covenant would not represent a physical covenant that would be entered into through physical circumcision or any physical act, but a spiritual covenant that would be initiated by God through a spiritual act. The setting apart not of the body, but of the spirit to God, the heart to God. Now, this is described in Jeremiah 31 when God said that he would put their law in their hearts. We also see it described in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. I've mentioned it several times. Let's read it. In Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28, the Bible says this, For I will take you from among the heathen, 
and gather you out of all countries, sound familiar, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. All of this should sound completely familiar to you because it's what we see in Deuteronomy 30. It's what we saw in Jeremiah 31. It's what we studied when we talked in Revelation. We see it in any number of places in Zechariah. And all of this establishes the reality that God has always had a plan. God has always had a plan from the beginning even when he was just establishing the nation of Israel, the Mosaic covenant that he gave them was never the final step, right? I mean, this is what we know from Deuteronomy 30. Moses is telling the people in the land before they enter into the promised land, this is in the days of Moses, the man who, who went up on Mount Sinai, the man who gave them the law. And Moses is saying, there's coming a day when God will put his law in your heart, when God will circumcise your heart the, the Mosaic law was never the plan, the end goal. It was a part, but it was never the end goal. And because the, uh, and, and, and all of that because what, what we find and what we find in Deuteronomy 30 is that the nation of Israel will fail spectacularly at trying to keep the Mosaic law, at trying to keep the old covenant. So this was always the plan. And notice here, what God says the plan would be. That he will put his law in their hearts, that he will give them a new spirit, that they will walk in his judgments, that they will seek to him, that he will give them the capacity to please and to obey him in their flesh. Now the fulfillment is found in a portion of the Bible that's aptly called the New Testament. And I want to make this link here just quickly and simply uh, I say that, and I don't know that, that you've caught it, the, the word change there. The fulfillment is found in a portion of the Bible called the New Testament, right? We might use a different word, the New Covenant. If I might open your eyes to that a little bit, in the King James, the translators use the word testament and covenant, and all but twice... Every, every instance, with the exception of two times, where the King James translators use the word testament, every other time we find the word covenant or the word testament in the New Testament text, they both have the same Greek word underlying them. The same Greek word, diatheke, which is effectively a contract or a covenant or a testament. So, by and large, when you see the word testament or you see the word covenant, it has the same word undergirding it, the same Greek word. It's the same thing. So when we say our Bible are broken up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we're actually seeing there is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Testament, the New Covenant. Quite literally, the essence of the Bible's division centers around the teaching of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And this is articulated very well in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews, of course, is speaking to Jewish believers. And as Jewish believers would be very, very loyal to the, to the Old Covenant and the essence of the Old Covenant, uh, there's a great deal about the Old and the New Covenant in Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 8, I'm going to read you the whole chapter. It's not that long. The Bible says this. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest. He is the high priest of the heavenly tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. He is a minister of the sanctuary. He is set down uh, at, on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man, that would be Jesus, have somewhat also to offer. For if 
he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So he's not a priest on earth because they are according to the law. And he wasn't a, a priest. He wasn't, a, a, he wasn't of, of the Levitical order. He was not a Levitical priest. He was not of the Levitical priesthood. So he's not a priest as it related to Israel on the earth, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. The thing is, is that the Levitical priesthood was only a shadow of something bigger, a type, if you will. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern, that would be the word type, showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So here we find Paul quoting Jeremiah 31 quite extensively, right? In the context of Jesus, who the writer introduced in this chapter as being such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. And then he goes on to say that the tabernacle on the earth, that God was so specific about the way he wanted the tabernacle built because it's a picture of the heavenly. It's type. Of the heavenly. And so God wanted it to be an accurate representation of its antitype in this, the heavenly tabernacle. In that same vein, we see the ministers, the priests of the earthly tabernacle, but Jesus was not one of those. Jesus was not of the Levitical family, and yet he is a priest of the heavenly sanctuary after a different covenant. He was not a priest of the old covenant. The Levitical priests are the priests of the Old Covenant. He is a high priest of a different covenant. And the case being made is that all that the New Covenant established was, excuse me, all that the Old Covenant established was simply a shadow of the heavenly, a shadow of that which was to come. The first covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was imperfect fatally flawed and thus demanded something different, something new. Now, it's not that God found a flaw in the covenant itself. Let me make that clear. The problem, and we'll, we'll talk about this more, was not the covenant. It was the people he made the covenant with. It was that the covenant was not fitted to the people because the people couldn't keep it. The people were the problem, which made the covenant a problem, right? If I have a perfect system... But then I give it to imperfect people. While the system isn't the problem, the fact of the matter is the people can't handle the system. So the system isn't right for them, even if it's a perfect, even if it's a great system. Right? So the law was, was fine, and we'll see that from Romans 7 in a little bit. It's not that the law was evil or wrong, but it's that it was not fitted for sinful man properly because we can't keep it. We can't keep it. So it is within this context that Paul reminds the reader that God promised this, and he traces this back to Jeremiah. Of course, we've traced it back through Jeremiah all the way to Deuteronomy 30, that the old would vanish away and that it would be superseded by a new covenant. And Paul's conclusion in verse 13 then is that the old covenant 
It waxed old, it has decayed, and it is ready to vanish away. Now consider within this context the superiority of the new covenant to the old. So we've talked about this idea that the old covenant was going to give way to the new covenant. That the old covenant uh, was, was seen, was given, but, but man was flawed. The Israel could not keep it. And so God promised the new covenant and Jesus Christ being the high priest of that new covenant, a different covenant, the old vanishing away. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, we read verses 1 through 17. The Bible says this, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. There was no way that those sacrifices that were given yearly could perfect those that performed them. You, you do your sacrifice, you walk away, the Day of Atonement happens, and the next day, you need a new Day of Atonement, right? Because you're already, you've already done something wrong. A new Day of Atonement is needed because you've, you've already broken God's law again. It could not make the comers unto that, that law, that covenant, perfect. For then would they have ceased to be offered. If they could make you perfect, then you only have to do it once or however many times, and then you don't have to offer them anymore. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldst not, neither hast thou pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. So quoting any number of passages of Scripture here, all of which are saying, look, God rejected even His own offerings and sacrifices when they were done improperly. Habakkuk, we see it. We see it in Micah 6. We see it uh, in, in a number of passages. Isaiah 1. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he is removing the old covenant to make way for the new. He is taking away the old covenant to make way for the new. And that new covenant is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The old covenant relied upon a system of perpetual animal sacrifices. The new covenant relies upon the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us for after that he had said before this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. Sound familiar? Saith the Lord I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So God promised to give the people a new covenant whereby he would put his law into their hearts whereby he would put, he would write his law upon their mind. He would give them a new spirit, right? This is that same promise. This is the, the, the same uh, um, um, assurance here. And all throughout, what Paul is saying is that that old covenant, which is exemplified in the law, was insufficient. It was insufficient to save. It was insufficient to sanctify. It was insufficient to in that it could not save, it could not sanctify, and man could not keep it because man's heart is rebellious. The law had no capacity to change the heart of man, 
The law had no capacity to enable me to overcome my sin nature. The Old Covenant was weak in these regards. But what the Old Covenant could not do, the New Testament, established in Christ's blood, did in full. Right? Jesus himself tells us this the night in which he was betrayed. We've mentioned this several times now. Over the past three weeks, we have partaken of the Lord's table three times. And each time, it has been with, by God's grace, a greater understanding of where this came from, a greater understanding of the promise of the new covenant, of what it means, of how important it is, how important that night was when Jesus said to his disciples, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. How, how, what, what would have triggered in the minds of the disciples as they thought about Deuteronomy 30, as they thought about Jeremiah 30 and 31, as they thought about Ezekiel 36, as, as all of those promises of a new heart, of a circumcised heart, of a new covenant would come flooding into their minds and say, this is what Jesus is establishing on this day. He is telling us that the new covenant has come. On that night, the Passover meal prior to his death, Jesus proclaimed this. He said in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, the Bible says he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. All of a sudden, you go back to Jeremiah 31, and they'd say, I will forgive your iniquities and take away your sins. And Jesus says, My blood is for the remission of of your sins. We are no longer just talking about the blood of goats and of calves and of bulls, which must be done time and time again. And once again, we think back to that observance that we do. We think back to the significance of that observance. And, and we may lose a little of that today because it's just something that we do. It's something that you've done. It's something, you know, you, you, you drink some juice, you, 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 you eat a, a wafer or a cracker, and then you move on with your day. And yet, what we are doing there is we are, we are remembering a time. We are remembering, we are, are calling to mind the frustration of the old covenant system. We are calling to mind all of those people who lived under this old covenant who would walk away from these sacrifices knowing that they'd be back at that altar again. Knowing that the frustration of their sin was still there, knowing that the blood of calves and of goats could not take away their sin, and then realizing that on that night, realizing that what we partake in, it, and it's something that we've never experienced, right? Because we've never been under a sacrificial system, but maybe you have. And what I mean by that is not that you've slain a bunch of calves and goats, but what I'm saying is maybe you have before your salvation. Maybe you did live under a ritualistic system. They're still going on today. There's still any number of church religious systems that are constantly going back to the altar to try to purge themselves of their guilty conscience. There's still any number of those out there. And what the, the new covenant, the new testament in Christ's blood is meant to teach us, is meant to, to, to what, what is intended to flood into our hearts as we partake together in the Lord's table is the reality that I don't have to come again and again and again. I don't have to take of the Lord's table for remission of sins, right? I'm not coming once a month or every week I'm not, I'm, I'm not partaking in that for the remission of my sins. I am partaking as a remembrance of the fact that it was done once for all. So as often as I eat this bread and drink this cup, I show, I demonstrate the Lord's death. I don't demonstrate my own coming to, again to purge my guilty conscience. I, I'm not coming again to purge my sin. My sin was purged once for all. It's done. And I am coming to remember the fact that it's done. What a difference. What a difference between the person who would go once a week or once a month and bring his lamb to the altar to, 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 to cover his sin and come back the next week with a new, a new lamb to cover his sin again and the fact that once a week or once a month we come together around the Lord's table, around the, the elements which represent his body and his blood, not to be purged from our sin, 
not to receive that, that, that temporary remission of our sin, that temporary atonement of our sin, that temporary covering of our sin, but rather to say, I am remembering the fact that it's done, that it is already purged, that it's already gone. All of it's gone. All of it's purged. This is the new covenant. This is what Jesus established. The blood of bulls and of rams is insufficient to take away our sin. The blood of, of bulls and of rams, that old covenant had no solution for the inside of me. That old system had no solution to change the fact that whether or not I actually did the things that I should or I should not do, I still want to do them. I'm just disciplining myself to not do them. And I still know that in my heart is sin. And I still know that in my heart is rebellion. And I still know that in my heart is envy. And I still know that in my heart is lust and covetousness. And I still know that that separates me from God because it's still there. And that was the frustration of the old covenant. And the new covenant came to change me from the inside out. This was God's plan. So we read the best description in Romans chapter 8 of the new covenant. The best description of the difference in the power of the old covenant versus the power of the new. Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. The Bible says this, Paul writing, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, right? It, through our flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. The righteousness of the law is now fulfilled in me not as I walk after the flesh not as I do things in the flesh but as I walk after the Spirit as I walk in the Spirit the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in me because Christ has fulfilled the law because the new covenant has fulfilled God's righteous expectations and then gives me the unction to serve him now, we establish a few more things about the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant before we focus our application upon the realities that the New Covenant affords those who are a part of it. Question number one. Does this mean that the Old Covenant was or is bad? Now, again, I've already answered this, but let's establish it doctrinally. Let's establish it textually. Was the Old Covenant bad? Sin? Wrong? No. Was it insufficient? Yes. But its insufficiency, again, is not rooted in it. It's rooted in us. It's rooted in our sin. Not it being evil, but us being evil. The law was made for a righteous man, but had no redeeming power to help the unrighteous. And the problem is, we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Which is why Romans 8 calls the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, weak through the flesh. But consider Paul's reasoning in Romans 7 in regard to the law. We go back in a few verses. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The, the law, the old covenant, what was not bad, and is not bad. The bad thing is sin, and it just so happens that we're all sinners. Therefore, when the law enters in, when the knowledge of God's righteousness and the expectations of God fall upon me, I can't bear them. 
I cannot bear those expectations. I cannot bear that righteousness. I cannot live that way. I cannot fulfill that in myself. I fall short. And so Paul says when the commandment came, sin revived and he died. That when the commandment came, he, his conscience was stirred up within him. And though he tried so hard, he recognized just how far short he fell of God's holiness. That he could not do it. And so he died. He said the commandment, to, uh, sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. So the law is holy. The law, the commandment is holy and just and good. But we have this sin nature. So then if the law is good, is holy, is just, but if it's insufficient, then what is the law for? Why would God even... Okay, so in, uh, going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see God say, you're going to have all these blessings, you're going to have all these cursings, you're going to be scattered, I'm going to gather you, you are going to receive a new heart, we know that, uh, a circumcised heart, we know that to be the new covenant. So his plan was the new covenant all along. Why the old covenant then? Why even have the old covenant? Well, we talked about it a little bit this morning in our First Timothy book series. In First Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, we read this. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So Paul tells Timothy that the law is good as long as it is used lawfully. And then that the law is not made for the righteous, but the law was made for the lawless and disobedient. The law is not made for the righteous. The law could only be fulfilled by the righteous, but none are righteous. So the law was made for the unrighteous, but not to make them righteous. Rather, the law is made for the lawless and disobedience, listing the various fruits of lawlessness and disobedience, establishing all of those things that are contrary to sound doctrine, the law highlights man's sin. That's what the law does. The law exists to show us how far short we fall. All throughout history, God has been going out of his way to prove to us that we aren't enough in ourselves. He gave us a conscience. We didn't care. He gave us government. We didn't care. He gave us a law. We didn't care. Right? Each time, each time we say, I'm good enough. I can handle this. It doesn't work. We rebel. We go our own way. We are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Right? So we have this reality that none of us is good. No, not one. How do we know that? We know that because I can open my Bible to the Old Testament. I can see God's righteous standards and I can say, I have failed. I know that because when I hear those Ten Commandments, sin revives and I die it becomes ever more apparent to me just how far short I have fallen of God's righteousness. And there's no way around that because my conscience commends itself to me. So the law is for the unrighteous. In what way? Well, we've already considered Romans 7 where Paul described the law as being the means by which his conscience was activated and thus he understood himself to be dead, separated from God, right? That's what it means. It doesn't mean that Paul killed over dead. When he died, that means he understood his separation from God. 
He understood that he was not right with God. He understood that, that he being a Pharisee of the Pharisees and sitting at the feet of Gamaliel and, and knowing the law and, and all of those things which Paul says he did was insufficient to establish his own righteousness. That it wasn't enough. And sin revived and he died. The sin, sin slew him. He was separated from God. We see a similar thing in Galatians 3. Paul asks this in Galatians 3.21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, if there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. If it was possible that a law could have given life, could have brought a man into righteousness, then righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, Right? that the promise of faith of Je- by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So we're all under sin because Jesus is the only way. The new covenant has always been the goal, right? The new covenant has always been the objective. If there was a law that could establish righteousness, it would have worked, but there wasn't because we are sinners. Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, Shut up unto the faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, right? The old decayeth and vanisheth away, makes way for the new. Once this, the, the, once grace came, once the new covenant is entered into, the old covenant ceases to function, ceases to be necessary, ceases to have its purposes fulfilled any longer. The law existed as a case study in human sinfulness. Paul says that if the law could have given life, surely it would have given life, but it could not give life. The law never served to free a man only to condemn him. And thus the law serves the same function of revealing to mankind his incapacity within himself under any circumstance to be justified by his own actions, his own works, his own motives, his own intentions. The law then serves as a schoolmaster, as a tutor to point the way to Christ. We talk about this fact sometimes when we're giving the gospel that you have to get them lost before you can get them saved, right? If a person doesn't know he has a need, then he's not going to grab the life preserver. No matter how much, if a person is drowning, but he doesn't think he's drowning, you can throw a life preserver out there, you can throw any flotation device you want out there, but if he doesn't think he's drowning, he has no need to grab the life preserver. He'll say, I'm fine, thank you, as he sinks to the bottom. The law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It activates the conscience of a man, helps him understand just how far short he has fallen the schoolmaster to point the way to a better covenant. A new covenant. A covenant where God not only tells us what he expects, but then in himself gives us the means by which to fulfill his expectations because we simply can't. A new covenant by which God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins, shedding his blood, becoming that perfect sacrifice, the blood which ratifies the new covenant, that every covenant takes the death of a testator, the one who would enter into the testament, Hebrews tells us. And in this covenant, God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, your heart will be circumcised. You will be given a new heart, one that desires to seek the Lord, one that understands the Lord. The law will be fulfilled in you as you abide in Christ. You will become righteous, be declared righteous, that word justified. So that when God looks at you, he does not any longer see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We can be made, not, not, not earn, not work, not formulate. We are made God's righteousness in Christ. He bears our sin. We bear his righteousness. Now, we've talked about this in any number of contexts. And we've talked about the fact that as it relates to the new covenant and salvation, the fact of the matter is, when we enter into the new covenant by grace through faith, our sins are washed away. We are 
holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. All of our sins are under the cross. God sees us as righteous. But then, as we talked about last week in the Sunday morning, the power of the resurrection, it's not just that God has saved us from our sins, but that the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead empowers us to live out His will in our mortal bodies, to give us a new heart, to circumcise our heart, to give us a new spirit, to put His Spirit within us, to put His law within us, to make us know it, to make us obey it, to make us live it. And in this covenant, God says we will, be, we will have the, the means, the ability to do what is right. Jesus dies to establish this new covenant. And while many in Israel have accepted this covenant over the past 2,000 years, many also have not. We talked about that last week. That wholesale turning to Christ of the nation of Israel will come in the last days. We would expect that because that's what the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 30 and 31, Ezekiel 36, as well as any number of other passages that we have studied over the past year. That God will take away their sin, take away the sin of the nation of Israel when they enter willingly into the new covenant by grace through faith. It is so appropriate that Israel was the name that Jacob was called after he had wrestled with the Lord for an extended period of time. That nation is still wrestling with the Lord. And there's coming a day after the time of Jacob's trouble when God will regather them and they will, as Jacob did on that day, prevail with God. And they will enter into his new covenant. But until then, they have rejected the new covenant and that because they're blinded by their own sin. We talked about that last week. This also was prophesied, Paul says specifically in Romans chapter 11, that this blindness has in part happened to Israel so that the Gentile world, the fullness of the Gentiles, may come into the covenant. For this time then, Israel is blinded and the Gentiles are the primary recipients of the new covenant. But there's coming a day, as we explored last week, when all Israel shall be saved. Not that every person of every generation, but there's coming a day when that final generation, the one that goes through the time of Jacob's trouble, the one who is regathered, where that generation will enter into the new covenant and then God can give them all the promises that he has had for them from time immemorial. But what does it mean for we? What does it mean for you and I who have, who have, we have entered into this covenant by grace through faith if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a recipient of the new covenant. You are in this new covenant with God through Christ. What does it mean? Well, of course it means salvation. We know that, right? It means salvation, blessed, but it, it means so much more than that. It means the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. Now, we've already talked about Galatians chapter 3, and as we talked about Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. I'd like to skip ahead to Galatians chapter 5. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's not talking about sin. That's talking about the old covenant. That's talking about the law. The yoke of bondage, if you look in the context, is the law. It is not our sin nature. If you want to talk about the yoke of bondage of sin nature, go to Romans 6, 7, and 8. Don't return to that, Romans 6, 7, and 8. In this, Paul's teaching is don't return to the yoke of bondage that is the Old Covenant. Don't return to the yoke of bondage that is the Old Testament law as an establishment of your relationship with God, as an establishment of, your, uh, of, of salvation, of sanctification, of, of life under God. We are free. We are children of the free woman, not of the bondwoman, Paul would say in Galatians 4. This freedom then becomes the means by which we do one of two things. We can either follow our flesh or we can follow the Spirit. Galatians 5.13 says that this is not an occasion unto the flesh, but rather that, that our freedom is an occasion by love to serve one another. Our freedom from the Old Covenant 
frees us from having to spend our entire lives trying to find a means by which to purge our consciences of sin. Our, our, our entrance out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant means we don't have to spend our entire lives aching under the yoke of the burden of my guilt and my shame. And that frees me, that frees me to walk in liberty with God, not against God. Freedom not to walk in the flesh. Romans chapter 6 tells us that if we use our liberty to walk in sin, we have blinded ourselves willingly under the slave master of sin. Binded ourselves to them. But rather, freedom to walk in the law of liberty. Against such there is no law. So we read of the blessedness of this freedom. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. This I say then, Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. There is a battle raging, and we read about that in Romans 7. There is a battle raging in the mind of the believer, in the heart of the believer, between the old nature and the new. But the only reason why that battle can exist is because the new covenant has given us a new nature. Outside of that, there's no battle. It's just my old nature. It's all I've got. But we have a new nature because our hearts have been circumcised, because we've been given a new heart and a new spirit. And so Paul says that the flesh is going to lust against the spirit, the spirit of God which he's given to us, and the spirit is going to lust against the flesh. They're contrary one to the other. But he says, if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. What does it mean? If ye be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Well, what does the law serve to do? The law serves to condemn. The law serves to, to bring guilt. The law serves to bring shame. The law serves to tell me I'm unworthy. The law serves to tell me I can't measure up. If I'm walking in the Spirit, then I'm free from that. I'm free from that, that old covenant. Now, many of the tenets of the old covenant we find in the new, right? We're not abolishing the old covenant. It's not as if the old covenant becomes... As in, as in all of the precepts of the Old Covenant become useless. Depending on how you look at it, all ten of the Ten Commandments find a reiteration of some sort in the New Testament. Most people say nine, not the Sabbath, but I have a theory on that. They're all there. And as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us, Paul says specifically, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, all of the law is comprehended in one thing, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That if I do that, then I am comprehending the whole of the law. I am fulfilling it all in, in this one direction, in this one idea. Not to be taken out of context. Not to be saying that I don't have to, that the other parts of the law won't be fulfilled in me. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And so we have this picture here. If I am led of the Spirit, I'm not under the law. I'm not under its precepts. I'm not under its guilt. I'm not under its shame. I'm not under its weight. I now walk at liberty rather than under bondage. This is the difference between the first covenant and the second covenant. The first covenant was a covenant that bound me that bound me under guilt, that bound me under shame, that bound me under the weight of a, of a system that I could not bear, that I could not live under, that I could not live up to. The second covenant says, Christ has already lived up to it for you, so now be free. And through his enablement, you can live it. Not under guilt, not under shame. You don't walk with your, with, with your back arched under the the, the, the weight of the new covenant. The new covenant does not do that to you. The new covenant has lifted it all off of you. All of that is comprehended. All of that is the memorial of that Lord's table. All of that is what Jesus Christ was instituting on that night in which he was betrayed. All of that is what, is, is what, 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 what Christ did for us. All of that is what God promised in Deuteronomy 30, what God promised in Jeremiah 31, what God promised in Ezekiel 36, and it's ours. 
If you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. These are the things that are fighting against the Spirit in the believer, right? Now, now the law is done, right? We, the, the, these things are not intended to be for us the guilt and the shame. These are the things that if we're walking in the Spirit, we will not, we, we, we will not fulfill. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, of course, speaking of of uh, sexual sins there, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They whose lives are defined by these things they who, these things are the essence of their lives. They who are bound captive to these sinful impulses are not believers. They have not the Spirit of God within them. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice what the Bible is saying, though. Paul is saying here that as the flesh is lusting against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, that these are things which we can commit. Now, under the Spirit, as I be led of the Spirit, I'm not under the law. But these are things which we can commit. These are the works of the flesh, which is lusting against the Spirit. But then verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Against these things, there is no law. Against those other things, all of those things were a, a defilement. All of those things were, in the Old Covenant, those were the things under which we would, we would be weighed down by guilt and shame. Those were the things that, that we looked at and said, these are the things that I, 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 I do, and so I cannot live up to God. As I walk in the Spirit, I bear the fruit of the Spirit. There's no law that would speak against those things. Right? Those are, are, are the things that, that are the essence of, of the Old Covenant and the New. And so Paul says, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. See, it's no longer about Old Covenant and New Covenant. They that are Christ's, it's, we're, we're no longer battling the Old Covenant. At this point, we're battling the flesh. The Old Covenant served to make us guilty, to, to, to hold us under the weight. That's done and gone. That's, that's, that's not us any longer. Now, that doesn't mean that the evils of the Old Covenant are not still evil. They are, right? They are. Those are the same evils that the Old Covenant said, don't do. So they're the same evils. But under the Old Covenant, these placed a weight on us. Under the New Covenant... We are free from these things. We can walk in the Spirit and so not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So to live under the new covenant means joy, means love, means peace, means long-suffering, means these nine attributes. To bear in our liberty the fruit of the Spirit of God, the freedom that we have to live and to walk in the Spirit. And this is the new covenant in Christ's blood. We affirm as we consider the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of that covenant, which is a better covenant. We affirm the liberty that we have in the new covenant, the liberty that has been purchased with the blood of Christ. So Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, which is just before what we had considered before. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When God spoke in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant that he would establish with the house of Israel, he said there was coming a day when all of that would be theirs. And there is coming a day when that will be theirs. They will join us, in a manner of speaking, in that new covenant. But blindness in part has happened in Israel so that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. And here we are, serving God, not in the oldness of the letter, 
Not in the weight and the guilt and the shame of the old covenant system. Not in that manner. But as we abide in Christ, as we walk in the Spirit, as we pursue the power of the Spirit of God in our lives, we live in the newness of the Spirit. We walk at liberty. May we live in it. May God help us to walk in it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.